They shoot the shit. They shoot, they shoot the shit. Shoot, 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 shit, shit, shit. Shooting the shit with Chippa. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another fun-filled episode of Shooting the Shit with Chippa. As always, I am your host, Chris Chipman, a.k.a. The Chippa. Before I get into my, wow, you're going to be psyched, super special guest today, um, I'd like to thank my $15 or more a month patrons. You are the guys that keep this going. You are Mason, Christopher Finnick, Patricia Chipman, Hugh K. Campbell Jr., Alex Peregrine, Kevin C.V., Mike the Gatherer, Tyler Freshcorn, Mark Price, collaborating online, Alex Shaw, Seth Comfort, Seth Decker, Andrew Krause, Little Nicky, Robert V. Aldrich, Aaron Moriarty, Carolyn Thompson, Scott Arcuri, and Shore Hansen Gustad. You all are incredible for allowing me to do what I love and that you guys love that I do it as well. And particularly during this rough year we've been having, um, your support has helped even more than you can imagine. With that, my very special guest today is the writer, director, and star of Scare Me on Shudder. Maybe you guys may have seen it. This is Josh Rubin. Josh, tell everybody hi. What's up, everyone? Thanks for having me, man. Oh, dude, it's awesome. And um, even though you can't see Josh's face, I already saw him do a lot of those uh, incredible facial expressions you do in this movie. I, you know, this is an actor's film through and through, um, and you two just nailed it. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that was that was basically why I made it. You know, no one was going to spoon feed me the opportunity to have an actor showcase, um, as it were, uh, unless I, you know, was uh, given some golden ticket. So I paid for my own golden ticket by cashing out some of my 401k and asking my friend Aya to be in it. And holy shit, we ended up with um, something pretty rad. It was a I'm glad I, I took the bet on my on myself, but it was definitely painful in the uh, in the present. Oh yeah, I mean four four person cast. I mean you got what? Oh God, I, is it Chris Red? I always forget his first name. Oh yeah, Chris. Yeah, and um, oh, oh man, the amazing Uber driver from the beginning. And, yeah, and, Becky Drysdale. Yeah, you guys. Sorry, you know sometimes sometimes my lack of um preparation and just going off the cuff and having good conversation screws me. No, but um, uh, you know it, it's it just you all feels so natural and you know we were talking before we started recording and i want to i want to jump back and you know get into a little bit of background about josh but just it's it's great to see a movie that feels like you're seeing behind the scenes almost of a preparation for a movie you know the the fact that it's so constructed and so about people that know the tropes and know like it's playful but it also sets up a movie in and of itself it's weird you know what i mean like i i've I've watched it about five times now and and every time i catch something new like sometimes you feel like you're in um like an, an actor's like um you know tryout you know or like a a session like you'd pay for it like a conference like we're gonna you know do some improv and do some stuff like this and then other times you feel like you're just another person in the room at the party you know and it's it's just such an odd and if, if any of these things broke down, I feel like the movie wouldn't work. You know, the, the lighting, the sound effects, the acting, the writing, um, it just, it really blows me away each time I see it and I figure out more, you know? Yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah. It's, um, there's, there's a lot going on for sure. Um, and, uh, it's just a testament to also just 
how great Chris and I uh, and, and, and Becky are, just like what my imperative was as a filmmaker is just like give people the opportunity to do their thing. It's, it's too small of a movie to, um, to, uh, to narrowly guide or to boundary really anyone if you, you know, if you don't have to. Um, and it was, uh, it was killer to, um, you know, to, to bring these brilliant people aboard, just kind of let them play it. It makes the movie all the more, um, I don't know, all the more exciting for sure. And all the more just kind of, uh, I think accessible. Well, also you've got the urgency of the social climate, you know, what was going on with, uh, you know, dare I say me too, even though it's not a me too movie. Um, but, um, just the urgency of the, of the topic um it's it's how the how the whole thing came to happen so quickly so i'm, I'm glad they're willing to come play and make it all their own given the given the you know given kind of a darker context and i i love that idea of having a character that you know in film you're you're immediately in, in the way that it's posed you have like some empathy towards right this is the every movie right you know um white guy goes off on his own to do something he's been beaten up by the world and not often do you get too many movies i mean the shining is a classic example right where that whole thing is about you know the deconstruction and danger of toxic masculinity in a horror movie standpoint and that movie was doing that you know 30 years before these kind of movements right so and I loved that you you peppered in that the, some of the first lines of dialogue he has are "Where's the flashlight, Mister Torrance?" <laughs> and I went, yeah, well, I, yeah. I just watched The Shining recently, because um, the uh, the night Welcome to Nightville folks did it on their random horror podcast, and I was like, I got to rewatch this movie for this. And there was a lot of that in, in here in your script and in the way this was staged. Yeah, thanks, man. Yeah, I I um I like movies uh that are kind of um that have a meta spin to some degree but i i also i certainly set out to to nod to all of the not just a, all horror tropes but but every everything about the horror films that i watched and loved as a kid um as i could um down to the details of the labels on the beer bottle um which have uh west west craven's birth year um on them wow. uh, the establishing date for the you know for the for the fake beer that we're drinking um the overlook hotel um you know overlook pizza on carlo's jacket the like um you have kind of those references but also just you know spiritually there are there are moments that feel like um uh, uh moments in movies that i sponged as a kid um everything from you know the way chevy chase uh phrased his um breakdown uh freak out at his boss in national lampoon's christmas vacation i can see myself like conjuring that when fred is talking about the werewolf crashing yep. in through the living room door to the fact that you know there's a story about a troll living in the air ducts well you know the troll living in the wall of drew barrymore's um bedroom in cat's eye i mean that that probably stuck with me and scared me more than almost just you know just about any horror um film I watched as a kid, um, down to the more like, you know, odd throwaway episodes of Freddy's Nightmares in the Friday the 13th TV series. I mean, I, I absorbed all the really esoteric, you know, kind of ancillary pop culture shit. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I, I like those kinds of movies that have that sort of meta spin, meta nod in the way so long you're, as you don't get caught, as the filmmaker doesn't get caught trying to exhibit them. 
And then also just, yeah. you know, I set out to make something as much as it has urgency and a message to it and the, and the like. It, I, um, I set out to make something like rewatchable. So the biggest compliment I can get from people, like, you know, it's, it's incredible to see people saying, oh, dude, I watched this movie. This is my third time. This is my fifth time. This is even my second time. You know, all th- within a few months, then to think about, you know, I get so stoked thinking about Halloweens of the future where people will, you know, say, holy shit, I either just discovered this, this is a new Halloween watch, or people who said, having watched it their first time, this is now going to be in rotation every every Halloween, you know, this kind of smaller s- storytellers movie. Yeah, and, and that's what I mean, you know, you feel like you're sitting there. I feel like this is a movie that you could take two people that have watched it on their own. And then put them together and you're going to, you know, grab some popcorn and crack a beer and, and laugh and be, you know, kind of, kind of weirded out by the direction it goes with the characters in the movie. You know, the, the fact that the audience's perspective keeps shifting around between the characters is really cool too. Like, I love how, when, when, um, you know, you're telling the story, it's Fanny you know, the audience kind of has that when she comes up, well, actually that was kind of scary. And you sit there as the audience and go, yeah, he got a little weird there. You know what I mean? Yeah, like it, yeah. it, it makes you uncomfortable. And then it shifts in the other direction when she's doing it. I also love that, you know, the, the little bits of like, even though she's supposed to be this brilliant best-selling author, when she finally gets to tell her story, it has some weird contrivances and stuff too. And when yeah. he it's like no 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 you don't get that chance now because you're you're not right <laughs> you know what i mean yeah yeah it sort of speaks to the you know the uh the subjectivity of the whole of the industry as a whole it's like you know some people just they do get handed certain opportunities and you're right to be frustrated in certain ways that you know it's, there's there is a bit of commentary in there and the frustration of why do they get the golden ticket why don't i but also by the same token you know, Fanny is ultimately right. She's done the work. And the the, the tragic truth of the matter is that a lot of women who um, are in this industry or really any, any industry, just like any, you know, marginalized human being has to work double, triple, quadruple as hard to exceed the, um, you know, the success, the, the privileged success and advancement of the, you know, the white um, male or, or female in some cases. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it, that's what barrels us towards the end towards, you know, Fred just sort of going, him latching onto this one thing that's actually kind of innocuous that he shouldn't have even done in the first place, you know, peeking in her notebook. She's really just scribbled some writer's notes and, you know, it's, um, takes that turn. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, every watch through, I always try to go, is, is, is she being like, if you take away the, the, um, the social structure that you put into the characters, right? Is she egging him on? No, they're just friends like busting each other's balls at this point. There's yeah, no, yeah. There's nothing devious about it. And yeah, when you read what someone actually thinks about you, that is a hard thing, but that's why you're not supposed to peek into someone's personal shit that deep, you know? Right, right, right. It, 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 it unveils very naturally. And I, I love how, um, the movie then goes to because it it ramps up tension. The stories the stories are scary. The sound effects and the visuals really add to them. I love the uh, um, how the movie always plays with whether they're seeing what you're seeing as the audience or if that's just supposed to be you, 
you know, placating those sounds or like the werewolf's hand. It's, you know, it tells that the story is being told well, right? But I love the bit with the eyes when they go. I oh, thought I love that. Yeah, that, that went, was so much Pat, uh, Patrick Lawrence. We did have a practical effect on set for, on the uh, dishwasher, but it just sort of clicked on and I wanted it to dim up. And Patrick Lawrence in the edit, I didn't even know you could do this. Um, but it, you know, I'm a, I'm a total amateur, even below amateur when it comes to most anything post, he was able to just create that sort of slow, um, that slow swelling glow in the background <laughs> that just added to it. And I, I love that moment too. I'm, I'm glad you're calling that out. Very few, few people have. It, it blows me away. Cause it's just, it's the kind of thing that as a guy who has dabbled, you know, in putting stuff like this together. It, it's the kind of thing you cheer for because it's like that is, you know, it's something in your mind where you go, do they actually see that or is that for me? And then right. when the characters point it out, it's like now is it's in their head, too, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and it's and it's so simple because this is exactly what happens to you when you're in a situation. You're in a house alone. The power goes out. You watch a scary movie or you wake up in the middle of the night and you see shit. Like that's what happens. And so you play with that idea of, you know, is this the filmmakers playing with you? Is it a magic trick or is it in your head? And then when the characters call it out, it's like now you're all being toyed with. And I, I, I love that about, it's a very inventive little movie. And you, you said it's polarizing and I can see, you know, the, the cynical type, not wanting to watch a movie with two people, just telling them a story to each other the whole time. But I think if you latch on and get taken by it, it's a kind of thing that's a really hard thing to pull off, right? How much of, um, you, you know, and uh, this is, you know, I'm, I'm a tangent kind of guy, so this is going out of order. I do want to get into, you know, why and how you made this movie, uh, you know, and what got you here. But it's a really important point to ask now. What, um, like, did you, like, write this first? And then like, or, or was it like an idea and you had shots conceived? Like how, how did this get developed? Um, well, uh, it was a, a confluence of things. You know, I, I was sort of fed up with where I was career wise in the commercial sort of industry and, and realized having read actually Mark and JD Plus's book, like brothers, which is, which is brilliant. Um, you know, no one was going to spoon feed me the opportunity to make my first film. I had to do it myself. And so while that was going on, I was also sort of, you know, really kind of broken up about the state of the Me Too situation um, because it seemed like everyone I'd admired in film and in comedy, although I didn't give a fuck about Louis C.K., Louis C.K. being outed, Aziz Ansari being outed, Weinstein um, notwithstanding, even folks like Dustin Hoffman, Kevin Spacey, like these these real fucking creative heroes, these titans. Um, you know, being called out for um, for all the things they had done, um, uh, and you know, crimes of humanity they'd committed, and power tripping, um, the the taking advantage of women in their industry for the sake of their power, and you know, um, uh, and all else. Um, I also it also sort of validated the the icky feelings I had about men that I'd work with, and not just on the man her he's going out of his way to make her feel uncomfortable, but also the um, the emasculated envy 
um, the competitive um, uh, vitriol and passive aggression of the um, fractured, uh, uh, insecure, inferior white dude. And there were a lot of men that I'd worked with, you know, over the years, very closely, in fact, for many years that, that I just noticed. And, and just as a people watching mimic, just as like an actor, which is like, fuck, that's fascinating. Fuck, that makes me uncomfortable. And in my worst moments, you know, sponging that behavior and thinking that it was okay in some instances for me to feel those things or me to, you know, enact never anything physically, but just the, the my entitlement, right? And so I, I was... <clears throat> that confluence of events of being where I was in the career, looking at, you know, a, a social toxic structure that was kind of happening. Um, I set out to start, you know, writing a film that was a, you know, was a horror film and that kind of dealt with something in that, in that place while not being a quote unquote me too movie. And so, uh, so I started just kind of packing away at a small idea that I knew per Duplass's book, I could write to my resources. Um, I wrote the tiny movie that worst case, I could also ho hold the boom and also like kickstart the cash if I needed to. And yes. um, you know, Brandon Banks and I, my cinematographer and I, you know, he and I have been doing you know, short films just for fun for many years. We were like, we're, we made a pact. We were like, we're gonna make a movie no matter what, doesn't matter how bad it looks doesn't matter if it costs you know five hundred dollars and has a thousand dollar budget whatever it is we're going to scratch you know like scratch that itch we're gonna you know hit the notch on the old belt and um we really did i think will this thing into existence a big piece of why scare me happened so fast was you know and going to investor buddies who i knew and producers that i knew you know here is a movie that is truly two three people in a house and truly is not expensive. I mean, we're, we're acting out these stories where we even don't even, we don't even really need money for props. I mean, we're creating objects out of space, like a Spolin show. So um, <laughs> at, you know, that's, that was the, that was the angle, you know, that was what was so intriguing. Not only do you have this kind of intriguing execution, but you also have this, the urgency of the social place. Oh, that's awesome. And you know, I, I love you hit on the thing that I was going to ask and it's perfect. The cinematographer is your friend. You've worked together. This is good. Cause I, I would hope, you know, sometimes it's just brilliant, you know, people you can hire that just get your vision. Right. But this movie felt like something that it it's, it's really well written. And I know that you, 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 you sold a lot of scripts or you gave them away. There was a thing I remember seeing on Twitter where like people could get the script. What what was that? Oh yeah, <clears throat> I went ahead and um, and published um, the script with an independent publisher, and I, I've been. Um, I actually took a cue from from Jim Cummings with Thunder Road. You know, he went. Um, he, he's he sold Thunder Road scripts, um, self published through Amazon. I decided to 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 do the same. I went through Ingram Spark, um, and basically just for anybody who wanted to buy them was curious about it. I had my buddy Henry Lee Gonzalez design a cover. Um, and I, and I put them on sale. Um, and, uh, you know, once I recoup the cost of publishing, I am going to, I am going to give them away. I mean, I I'd really prefer to give them away to people who are just kind of beginning to navigate the film industry to students, to people who've never read a script before, or just curious about right. the process. But, um, That's yeah, that, I, myself. okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not in it to, 
to make money on on that script whatsoever. I mean, I, I want it to be a collector's item for people who love the movie, um, who want to kind of add to their, uh, you know, their rad collectible shelves. Of course. Um, that I'm, so, I'm so envious of, so I want to make it a special, um, a special relic for fans of our, our little movie. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's more of a branding thing. You know, it's like the reason why I like to, to send postcards to people or stickers to fans or horror trading cards to fans is because, you know, um, I like connecting um, with people, especially just to show my gratitude, you know, a stamp and a hello means a lot to people. It means a lot to people to have some, you know, um, some relic direct from the source, even if it's, yes. you know, a tiny project and in 10 years they can look at it and say, holy shit, you know, I was able to have some kind of a mail correspondence or Twitter correspondence. I, I think that accessibility in that community is why I got into this shit in the first place. I you know, um, used to be all over forums at College Humor and even with my sketch group Dutch West before that. Um, and uh, it's, you know, it's, it's a big piece of, of who I am and how I am, where I am is, is, you know, keeping up that community element, being a good person, chatting with people and not isolating yourself. I, I agree that that's awesome. And, and that's, that's what I think is so great about, about the horror community, especially the, you know, lower budget, um, you know, all these chances that are being given like your chance, you know, by places like shutter and, and anything, you just, the, the ability to connect with the people that you admire is so much easier now. Um, and uh, the people that go out of their way to make that connection easy, you know, it means, you know, even, even this conversation, right? You could have said, no, this means the world to me. <laughs> you know what? I, I, I love, I love doing this and I just love how open, like you came from a background with that level of openness and you don't want to forget that. And that's, that's super cool. Cause you know, <laughs> yeah. Oh, it moves me into, you know, the, the thing you know back to you write this script then you've got the cinematographer that you know and this movie really is sold on the way those stories are told you know the the low camera angle with the you know your like contortionistic face that you're doing with the lighting and everything and the hands making the tree branches clink like like the house in poltergeist, or the tree <laughs> poltergeist. <laughs> just, those little things are so much more rewarding than, you know, like you telling the story and then it being an anthology where you see it being played out, you know, with special effects or whatever. I, I, and I feel like, you know, that script is only part of it, right? The script is great, but then you're acting, I is acting, you know, everybody in there. And then the, the camera angles, well, it is a simple one room, you know, movie, I, I've, I've interviewed people that shot a whole movie on an iPhone. People will go, well, how can you make a good looking movie that way? And it's like, because you can have, you know, like a, a cheap camera and still make it look beautiful if you know how to use it. And you can have a great script, but if you don't have actors that can act out the script, it doesn't always necessarily help. And so all those pieces have to come together. And, and like I said earlier, if one piece of your movie didn't work, there's no, you know, big special effects shot to save it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's just not that kind of movie. <clears throat> it's just not what, you know, it never was about the, um, never was about the, uh, the VFX. It's all performance and it's kind of all we had. I mean, I, I don't, I just don't feel comfortable, you know, navigating the, um, the kind of VFX, um, the VFX heavy world. Uh, I'm I'm excited to certainly someday, but I think right now just kind of finding my footing as a as a as a filmmaker 
yeah, there's there's so much you can do by holding takes and just letting actors do their thing. I mean, Yorgos Lanthimos is a big influence on uh, on on me on Scare Me. You know, movies like Dog Tooth and Lobster and Killing of a Sacred Deer, just oh. so so killer. Even you know what the Safties or Robert Egger do, Eggers does and, and Ari Aster. Yeah. I mean, there's there's very little. VFX, but it's all sort of tonal performance-based um, stuff. Some of the greatest horror. I mean, John Carpenter's Halloween is is almost all music. You know, it's music yes. and and shadow light, and it's uh, it's so effective. Now, how um how much of the uh, the sound cues were were in your original script? Was this like something that was felt out in post, or was this intentional? like as as you wanted it to be out there because there there's some incredibly great sound cues in this movie <laughs> oh thanks yeah sound is everything i pitched this as a sound designer's movie and a composer's movie so even though our budget was peanuts and our fees paid out were peanuts um thankfully our sound designer ian steinus and john moros our mixer and our designer were so down for the cause because it, it <clears throat> allowed them to be able to showcase their talents um, for Chris Maxwell and Phil Hernandez, our composers who do Bob's Burgers, you know, and this being their first yes. feature, was able for them to, yeah, to showcase their talents in the narrative space. You know, um, I felt bad. I kept kind of pushing them in such a Joseph Bashara kind of a route, but you know, was um, was eager for them to do their own thing. And and we ultimately have such a such a fun series of um, you know cues, um, but yeah, the sounds were always there. They were there from the get-go. Um, there's a good deal of them in the script, pretty accurately as is, because you know again, um, you know there were there were few, if any, um, creature effects or shadow effects. So the whole thing was sound design. I actually made a separate document of just um, of the same script, but but emphasizing sound cues for my sound mixer. So I kind of combed through the script and um, and, and over articulated, you know, bold caps lock, you know, colon, um, you know, uh, tree sound, um, floor creep right. from above as if shuffling, you know, that sort of thing, lightning, thunder, um, uh, creaking groan, all that good stuff. That's awesome. Um, and, and, it, and it comes out that you had all that stuff thought out because it's, you know, I, I love how the, even with like the, how much stuff that's in their heads comes out, you know, you, you layer that, right? Like it doesn't just start out the minute he walks into the house, you know, there's the, the fourth wall is breaking and things are creeping out, right? Like it starts with him doing funny sound effects and voices and her doing funny sound effects and voices. And then the sound effects start becoming less, less human made. And then you layer on, you know, something otherworldly. I, I love when it culminates into the, uh, the devil American idol one where, you know, her voice is just completely like four up four different voices, like all layered. It's like it, it, the movie ramps like, like a horror movie does, but it's ramping a different style. It's not like ramping a killer lurking. And then the, the, gore and the blood gets more intense it's the sound and the um disbelief and the messing with reality and how much anger is building up inside this guy um as the movie goes along and it, it it's just really cool to watch and even more cool to figure out where the influence came from and you know how much um was a lot of that done on set you know or was it you know 
just like a, like you said, a sound designer's dream where they just get to play with it all after and add all this stuff. Oh yeah, they we added everything after the big the the big imperative for me was um, uh, with them was let's not get caught making sounds. Um, yes. Let's not let's not you know uh, let, let let's not um, uh, ever make the viewer think about the noise, but just sort of feel it and and experience it as if it were really happening. So everything came from a place of you know what would it really sound like if a small you know, uh, decomposing dog trapes down, you know, like clackety clack <laughs> down wooden stairs, you know, um, you know, the re real floor creaks, um, you know, pulling back on gore, like basically just not going too big, but being just as kind of grounded and, and big enough to be effective. Well, and it, it highlights classic storytelling, right? Like everybody, I think, at least from, from our generation for sure. And back, grew up with family members that told stories and friends and like boy scout leaders or whatever that would tell ghost stories. And it's all in the tone and cadence of your voice. And the, like you said, how you hold it and how you make people wait for stuff. And the, the way this movie dances around comedy and that, like the, the levity of her, you know, calling him out on something, not having enough detail or the, you know, <laughs> her hearing the devil voice before you see your face. And then cutting to you and you're just like that possessed red lit stare, but she still <laughs> hears the voice. And it's like, it's all the things that like, it, it hits a guttural. Cause you know, th this is not, you know, you're, you're playing with comedy and horror until the thing becomes a slasher movie at the end. Right. Which is, which is really cool right. like, that it goes, into, but that's more sad at that point. Like you're like, you feel like she just needs to get out of here. Like there's not, it, it it's, it's cool that you play around with that because the movie is really funny, but it also has some very quick, like pu gut punches of, Oh no, like there's actual danger here. Like the, this isn't fun, you know? Uh, and um, it, it's just, it, it's really cool how the stories seem to get weirder as he breaks down more and the, the sound gets more intense and the, um visuals get more intense and it, it, they're still in control you know and this is about the time i would do a slow you know zoom <laughs> i'm like yeah this is great <laughs> but uh yeah um, it, it's just it's it's so refreshing to see something so different because i was worried it was going to be an anthology movie when i clicked on it and i'm like it's going to cut away at some and i like anthology movies and i was like it's going to cut away and i just want to hear them tell these stories because you, you're you're both very engaging you know yeah, well, the reality is we couldn't afford to cut away. <laughs> we, we could only afford the house. We could only afford uh, being there for the 13 days to shoot the thing. Um, but it, it, it was also, it's a, again, a big piece of how we got this movie made. Here's this unique spin. Here's basically, you know, a big dare. Let's dare to make a movie that creates objects out of space. You know, this almost like improv space movie without there being improvisation, even though that's some criticism we've gotten. Um, that, you know, this is, it's heavily scripted. It's heavily thought out. We were well-prepared. Brendan and I, my DP and I, we shot listed all 230 some odd shots, even before we knew the location, because we wanted to be so prepared and also knowing that I was going to be in front of the camera. Um, I, uh, I didn't want to take any chance 
of not knowing at any turn how we were going to attack any one scene, any sequence, any anything. Um, because, you know, here's this kind of, you know, vanity project on my behalf. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. And that's, that brings me to another thing. What, what did the, you know, that location is, is killer, no pun intended, but it's, it's, you know, it adds so much, um, character to the movie. It reminds me a lot of the cabin from secret window. I don't know why I haven't gone back to watch that. <laughs> I don't know why, but there's just something about it. Might be about the way you framed the shots, um, but I I loved that movie. That that movie was a lot better than it had any right to be. And um, you know, this it's just such a good character, and you filmed the crap out of it. You know, knowing those shots before it is the only way you pull this off. If this had been done, you know, more guerrilla like mumblecore style, with just you know, ah, move the camera around while they talk, and we'll figure it out. It, it would not have been as impactful. It's very, it's very important that, you know, when he's being imposing and telling his story that you go to those low shots. So you feel like you're a person in the chair watching. And, you know, when she's reacting to him doing something creepy, you want to see what she sees. And um, the, the quick cuts that would never actually work if you were there where like they're playing the two characters, you know, with the werewolf coming out of the darkness and the other side and cut around. And it just, it, it really adds a momentum that, you know, just filming a couple of people talking, I'm not sure if it would, if it would work, you know, um, are there plans to perform this ever? I would pay lots of money in a post pandemic world to watch this performed on stage. I think it would be really cool. Oh, thanks, man. I mean, I'm, I'm definitely, uh, I'm definitely planning on, um, on adapting this, this, this movie into a stage play. There's just no way it's not going to happen. Theater is going to roar back. And um, the, the whole concept lends itself to the idea. I mean, the dream scenario would be that, you know, I and I could do, you know, at least like a two week run for charity or something, which would be yes. so, so, so fun. Um, I mean, the whole cast, um, but uh, it would also be so exciting to see um, a new, even, you know, more diverse cast take yep. on this, um, take on this uh this play and um i already have some really fun ideas for kind of how to separate it from the film so that you know it, it it stands on its own um but uh you know that's a world i haven't dipped my toes in in ages i, I come from the theater world but certainly not the pro theater world and so that's going to be a fun other chapter down the way for sure so it, it will happen mark my words nice <clears throat> and you know back into the set what was the set like on this movie? Was you know I, I always like to ask people that because you can watch a movie with with the amount that's available to people now. It's really easy to make a very beautiful looking, very inexpensive movie, and I don't mean that to undermine it. It's just people can surprise you. Like I've I, I watched this movie for Salem Horror Fest that when the guy said, "Oh yeah, no, we shot that in six days and it cost us nine grand," and I went, "Your movie's huge. How is that possible?" You know, it like you just like mm. I, I I made a fifteen long <clears throat> zombie movie with my friends in two thousand four, and we spent eight grand on it. You know, like yeah. how like how do you make a two hour long movie for? And it just it blew me away. And so I, I always like to know, you know, like what what was the shooting schedule? How many people were there? You know, well, what was it like? Well, we were a crew of about I'd say twenty. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, we it, it was it was more sizable. I mean, 
keep in mind, a few of those people were, you know, our investor, Eamon Downey from Last Rodeo Studios was around. Um, Dan Powell, our producer, you know, would sort of drop in and out. Um, but, you know, five person cast and you've got your, you know, your kind of lighting crew, your, your makeup artist. Um, uh, we had an extra makeup artist come the day that I was um, impaled by the poker, Susie Bua, who's amazing. Yep. Um, so yeah, the onset sort of, sort of below the line crew. I mean, I, I think we were, <clears throat> we were 20 or just shy of, um, but it, again, it was, it was vastly undermanned. Um, yeah. And uh, an extremely low budget. Um, I, I had to, um, I had to defer my DGA uh, fee. This was a DGA, it's a union film, so of you course. know I'm 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 in I'm in the union, the DGA, and in the WGA, and I had to de defer both those payments. I haven't made a penny from this movie um, at all, and I think it's going to be some time before I do, even though it's a low budget film, but. Um, but, you know, we have crew deals. It was another one of these wonderful things I read about, you know, um, uh, sort of philosophies I read about in, in the Duplass's book is that, you know, if your film succeeds, if you the film makes money, your whole crew makes money. So everyone who came aboard to do, you know, uh, make a couple hundred bucks a day or whatever it was, um, they have a, they, they own a piece of this film. They have a piece of the pie. They've got skin in the game. So, you know, they'll be hopefully someday handsomely rewarded for their, uh, for their efforts and for, you know, for their essentially doing a favor gig, but yeah, make, make no mistake. I mean, you know, we, we were <clears throat> eating pop tarts and, you know, home yep. cooking and, and, um, you know, sort of sh shooting in the same house. We did makeup in that there was holding in that there was storage in that the office was in, um, and, uh, people were sleeping and, you know, um, and, on living room floors, on mattresses um, that were rented. And when, you know, in any, any of my off time, I was helping, you know, uh, clean up and deliver food and, and um, you know, doing as much as I possibly could, even though I, I was trying desperately not to get sick, which is miraculous. I didn't even get a sore throat on the film, but Aya, unfortunately, got, uh, she had, I don't know what she came down with, some kind of, some kind of flu, basically. Um, oh. And uh, I, I don't know how, yeah, everybody got some nasty ass cold. I, I just don't know how I made it through. Um, shielded, I think I was just too, too high. I, I, I just, despite all the challenges, I just loved making this movie so much. It, it definitely feels like something that was fun to make. Um, and you don't always get that from people. Some people will go, oh, it was terrible, but uh, we're very happy with the product. But you, it, it seems to be a, a film of love. Like you can see it on the faces of, of you guys, right? It's not, it, it's hard to sell this stuff if you aren't actually enjoying doing it. Oh yeah. And, and we all did. We all did for sure. Um, uh, it, it was a, it was a labor of love. I mean, straight up you know straight up that's awesome now um did you say i i may have missed it because that's super is how many days how many days long was this shoot or how many months or whatever it, it, oh it was it was the the shoot was was 13 days i mean we yeah. and we had to we had to uh we had aya cash for nine of those days and chris red for about 48 hours um and becky for 48 hours yeah, I mean, he was in between SNL. Um, he, you know, took a car up. We shot him out. 
we got, you know, we, he, we endured a snow, a, a major blizzard. Um, he shot the following day and then got like a car service back to the city so he could go right back into SNL. I mean, it was, it was really insane. Um, but he was such an incredible sport. And so, um, just so, so down, just so down to clown and dive right in. And he, he just absolutely knocked it out of the park and loved, loved having him for as short a time as we did. But yeah, man, it was a tight schedule. It was, it was 13 days. And then I think, I think the edit, I don't know, was like six to eight weeks or something before we had a, before we had a first cut. And then, um, you know, uh, by the time, by the time we did have our, have our first cut we would you know we screened it for some folks and got some great notes and you know the first cut came in way too long it was like two hours and 10 minutes and you know our criticism is still that it's still fat but um that was a learning process for me as a first-time filmmaker like oh it's great it works two two hours and 10 minutes great i'm like i'm so glad we cut it down to one hour 40 whatever but i could i could also easily cut another eight minutes having done another film since um just oh, kind of, yeah, you know, of seeing what you can what you can trim out you know <clears throat> wow yeah no it's that that's cool and, and again you know having never done anything on this scale but still that's the other thing i love about talking to people it, you you get a feel for how much of it is human you know you, you, when I when I started doing podcasts, it's like, oh, you're, you know, I'm going to get to some, you know, bigger name person, people that are, you know, doing stuff, and it's going to be like a different world, and I'm not going to be able to talk to them. And everyone I hear from is like, no. At the end of the day, you just got to put in the work. At the end of the day, I still have to work. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's a hundred million dollar movie with a nine hundred person crew, or a you know ten thousand dollar <laughs> movie with a twenty person crew, or you know whatever it is. It's the same. If, if you care about it, if your heart's in it, that's a story anyone can learn something from, right? And uh, wow. So, yeah, the Chris Red thing being done in 48 hours amazes me because that's a big part of the movie. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We, you know, it's uh, if I hadn't done, oh, I don't know. <clears throat> seven years of college humor videos working my ass off and just realizing, you know, just kind of like um, having such a hit the ground running film school experience. Um, <clears throat> I wouldn't have been able to tackle the movie. I wouldn't have been able to, you know, kind of be where I am, but I just, I take to that pressure really well. Um, and yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank God. So that <laughs> That's a cool that that's a cool way to transition into you know sometimes it all depends on how natural it goes but w let's talk about what what got you to to scare me like what um you know w did you always want to be a filmmaker how how did this happen I wanted to to be an actor I wanted to uh, I wanted to be a serious actor I, I mean I I studied with uh, with uh, Lola Cohn who's one of Lee Strasberg's last students I did. Youth theater in Woodstock, New York. I did short films. I really wanted to be, God, I auditioned for that James Franco, James Dean movie. I mean, I, I thought I was going to be like a serious, <clears throat> like really, you know, um, kind of dramatic, comedic, straddling, you know, sort of actor. And Robin Williams was like, you know, he was my idol because he was doing it all. I wanted to do one man shows where I could kind of, you know, again, like create something out of nothing and make people laugh and play characters. But I also wanted to do the drama thing. Um, and the filmmaking side of it 
came later, even though my folks had gotten me a camcorder for high school graduation, um, and I would make movies with my friends, quote unquote movies. Um, yes. I, I I didn't. Uh, I, I didn't necessarily want to be a director, but when I couldn't get an agent, I founded a sketch group with my buddies years ago in New York City and started making sketches. And that's how College Humor noticed us. So I sort of learned filmmaking through the back door. I learned it just by kind of picking up a camera, and just making shit um, with buddies. Um, so um, that was that was the beginning. And then basically, you know, <clears throat> College Humor, Sam Rice, you know, owns the owns college humor when he was just an employee and heading up the originals department he asked me to come aboard and direct their sketches professionally and i was not in any way a professional director my only experience was making sketches with my buddies and so i i really truly learned like to dive in as a director as a fucking staff director at this you know essentially funnier die level company um and just you know, I, I made thousands of sketches. I was acting in them. I was directing them. I was writing some. I, was, I got to work with different personalities, deal with different egos. And I mean, it was it was such a conservatory. You know, there, there's due for a documentary someday about that whole movement of like the internet content, internet comedy website boom. It's a really oh, fascinating yeah. time. It's, it's It was such a... Um, it was such an explosive time. And everybody who came out of that um, that world is uh, is successful. I mean, Dan Gerwich working for um, uh, last week um, with John Oliver and Owen Parsons and Pat Castles, you know, winning Emmys for their work and Sarah Schneider with the other two and David Young with Corden and Jimmy Fallon. I mean, it, it, goes, it goes on and on and on. Um, notwithstanding the actors that we worked with, I mean, I think we gave Matt McGorry and Aubrey Plaza and Thomas Middlejit some of their first gigs. Yep. Um, <clears throat> Zach Woods. Um, yeah. So uh, yeah, it was it was it was such an incredible such an incredible time. That's where I learned everything, you know. And that's that that that's what makes these stories so awesome. Is it's like you know, you you got to know where you came from. And you get a different story from everybody. Like I loved all of that stuff, right? Like I was at the exact right age for, and you were at the exact right age to be making it, right? We were all on the same level. So it's like being in college, grad school, and then after, and like being in that internet comedy boom, the funnier die yeah. of college. And I love the world that grew out of too, right? Back, back before there were specific sites, you know, you had new grounds, albino black sheep, uh, you know all all these different like you know shockwave player videos and all, all this yeah. you know all these things for like just I, I know i had a friend from college then the early days of youtube started his own comedy channel just out of inspiration and ended up becoming an employee of tosh.0 for like four years oh wow yeah i remember tosh so it's just like what you know like it, it was awesome and I, and I loved that boom because people were just grabbing up people from everywhere and all of these young people that were aspiring actors, aspiring filmmakers just got a chance, like you said, to be in like a conservatory. Like it would be like being in yeah. one of like the best schools for what you're trying to do with just people all throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing if it sticks. Yeah. 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 It, it really was an insane time and, and cool to watch you too. Like, God, 
um, everything from Homestar Runner to Derek Comedy, um, Invisible yes. Engine, which I think very few people probably know. If, if, I know that one. Know, well, and you know, yeah, unless folks knew, um, you know, Dutch West, they, they they probably didn't know in Invisible Engine. But Invisible Engine was Sean Beery and Chris Cantwell and Matt Wyatt. Um, all of whom went on to work in various, you know, degrees and departments of production. But Chris Cantwell went on to write for, um, for Marvel Comics, and he created a halt and catch fire. And you know, and still be able to keep up with these guys and talk to these guys and see how their careers have kind of gone on. It's again just that whole boom, that whole time was just so, um, so, uh, uh, so wild. What a specific and and, and wonderful era it was. And I got to say, I mean. <clears throat> Working for my friends in New York City um, with a kind of, you know, I call it a diplomatic immunity. My, you know, my my buddy, Sam, was the one who started that department, the originals department, and built it from the ground up with, with you know, people like us. You know, I got to basically go to this kind of, you know, desk job where we'd also get to go out and shoot sketches with incredible comedians and buddies um, and then, you know, come to the office and you know, we had money in our pockets and we'd play, you know, we'd have nerf fights and we'd do live shows, at the Gramercy Theater. I mean, it was such a golden era um, in so many ways. Um, I am so, uh, I look back at that time so, so fondly. I mean, especially God being like a 27, 28 year old. It was just, just so incredible. I'm so, I'm so so glad I I didn't try to just hit the ground running just as a as a as an actor because I was very close to sort of resisting it as a you know writing it off as like a corporate desk job which it which it wasn't you know we somehow were the we were the black sheep in the you know the same building as Zappos. <laughs> Wild, yeah, man. Uh, this this is so cool, and, and I, I love these stories because. You know, it it's one of those things that like people people turned such a cynical eye on and again, rightfully so, it's a hard thing to get into, but these these stories of like being an artist or being an actor, or being a director, you know, whatever your your passion is, and then just hearing, you know, there's still room there, there whatever the next thing is gonna be, you know, whatever the next boom is, you know, of like something that needs people that want to work and do stuff. And you just named a whole bunch of people that have careers now because of that. Yeah. Because they yeah. Just, yeah. Just something. I I had an interview with a guy who worked for um, Cartoon Network, doing like you know some of the early like what a cartoon shows, Dexter's Laboratory, and all that. And this this guy's name was Zeke Cam, and he wrote the last blockbuster documentary. I have a I have a show called Talkbuster, and I've had him and the director, you know, on. And he was talking about you know the. That, those days, all of those people that were like in Cartoon Network were, were all went to the same college. So we were all at, at an art school, mm. you know, learning animation. And he said, we got the job because one of our buddies fell in with these people and they were trying to build this channel. He goes, and, you know, all of our funny stories usually revolved around us, like giving crap to Seth MacFarlane. <laughs> he said he wow. went to off and did his own thing. And you know, now we're all doing our own thing, but it's like, you know, Seth was like, you know, the, the guy that didn't have a car that used to always have to bum rides to go everywhere. <laughs> like that's wow. so goddamn. And you just never know, right? Like you, these, you never know when you're, when you're living the next big boom like that. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. And in a in a in a different way, I see in an adjacent way, there is a there is a horror boom right now. Yes. There's, the horror community is now the um, the front focus. Um, uh, you've got the garage band kind of effort, uh, sort of in a way, um, uh, hitting the ground running and making great, you know, um, I don't know, mid budget, mid range horror films that, um, that are fresh and, uh, and exciting. And it's, it's so, so cool to be part of that. And the innovation, right? Like I, I remember seeing, um, what was it? Searching. And uh, that's, I forget that director's name. He's amazing. And uh, have you seen Searching? It's, it's, it's a movie that easily could be a horror movie. It's a horrific story, but it's not a horror movie. But um, I don't think I have. So that, that's the movie. The, the guy who directed it made um, Google commercials. So there's a lot of commercials like on a computer mm. screen. Like people mm. clicking on music. And he made this movie that all takes place on a computer screen. And not like in a host way. Host is a different, you know, that that's playing into the, uh, you know, Zoom meeting, which is its own thing. And, and I'll get to that. But this movie is about a guy whose daughter goes missing. And the movie is watching him trying to break into her computer and find out if he can find anything. Mm. And it's, it's so intense. And it's all just on a screen of a computer. And um, the follow-up this guy made is a movie called Run that I think either Shutter or... Amazon. Oh yeah, that's right. That's right. Those guys. Well, well. If it's if Run is even is a mild testament to what Searching was. I mean, yes. I, I I have to check it out. I absolutely I and, loved Run. And I know that those are you know those move into the moderate to higher end, but like it's the level of innovation of the pool that you're working in right now, right? You know, because you've got. All this stuff on Shutter. You've got movies like Run. I saw anything for Jackson recently, which that writer director team made nothing but like Hallmark Christmas movies, and then they yeah. pull out this like badass mid range budget horror movie, and I'm like, where did this come from? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's it, it's, it's a killer time. It's a killer and time, it, and it blows me away that places like Shutter and you know, Arrow, Arrow Video, you know, are, are buying up these things and giving you guys all an even playing field to play in. Because it's, it's, it's like that conservatory again. It's like, you know, you make, you make your movie, people see it, and, and they see your movie right next to, you know, um, you know, something from James Wan, you know, sitting on there. And it's like, the people, you know, your average viewer isn't paying attention to, well, that one costs 10 grand. This one costs $8 million. They just go, wow, I liked both of those movies a lot. I'm going to look at more stuff from that guy. And That's the wonderful thing about looking on iTunes, you know, and in the library and seeing Scare Me next to Wolf of Snow Hollow next to, you yes. know, a, a, something Carpenter did to, you know, it's just, just like, a, here are the top 10, you know, most downloaded, you know, this month or whatever. Um, that was a really phenomenal kind of cool thing, or, you know, it's, uh, uh, Maisie Williams's new horror movie next to my, I mean, just kind of being, just having a product, just having a, a horror piece people respect and it's been on a top 10 list and stuff to see it in the, um, 
in the ether to see it in a library with you know respectable films of the genre is just it's it's so cool like to on on a on a same list or close to like the invisible man i mean just just the top 10 lists this year and to share top 10 lists is like relic and freaky and lee winnell's work it's it's uh so crazy and his house i mean it's it's just like out of control Oh, Freaky. I just watched Freaky recently, too. That would have been a hell of a movie to see in the theater with a crowd. Yeah, I, I know. I know. I love, I love that subversion. I love the idea. Of, you know, my entire shtick is going to be taking ideas that, hey, it worked in this comedy. Let me try it in horror. And it those his, that guy's three movie run, the two Happy Death Day movies and, and Freaky. Mm. The way is how totally a shift because freaky is not screwing around as a slasher movie right the happy death day movies are a little right. and less violent freaky is just like yeah no this is this is a jason movie like not only are we gonna have fun but whew. yeah yeah it's it's so it's so killer i forget who i was listening to maybe it was a, a post-mortem podcast or something but oh. they were talking about how when the uh the bottle kill down the throat yep. was, was something that they had done before. And it was, you know, they had, they, they had given it credit. Like there was the credit was given, but it was, it was the context that made it different. It might've been like a, it might've been a Freddy Krueger or Jason killer. But anyway, it was just, it was, it was really funny to, to, um, to listen to that. And, you know, you just get a sense of how, how big of horror fans, um, uh, you know, Landon and Kennedy are that they would, uh, you know, pull from everything they've seen from the darkest corners of all, you know, all, all the, all the films they'd watched as kids and beyond. And yet have it feel fresh, which is exactly what, what you did too. You know, that you, you, you know, I, I, um, you can easily create something that's very similar to ready player one, where it's like, I, I liked that when I first read it, when I first came out and you realize what part of fandom, you know, when you read a book like that, where it's just like, this is just a guy trying to remind you all of the things he knows and he's seen. This is gatekeeping. You know, this is like the thing you try to avoid in fandom. And I, I love how your movie doesn't come off that way. It comes off as two people that are fans, mm-hmm. like sharing their knowledge back and forth to better what they're doing together. You know, mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. and any time your your character particularly does it is when it comes off in like that he's doing it out of like a like a fanboy thing, but the movie is shining a light on the fact that he's doing that. You know, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. and I and I whereas her stuff is all natural. Her and her and um uh Carlos are you know naturally just having a good time and throwing references back and forth where fred seems like it's forced like like the fact that he leads not with his werewolf story but leads with the story that he stole from his uber driver yeah yeah bad boy he leads the movie stealing stealing a story from a woman and then spends the whole time acting like it's stupid that this girl is so caught up on that I have so been there um, uh, in witness to one man in particular who I know very well um, who would do that, who would pull that same shit. I mean, who, you know, and and also coming from the comedy world, you see it so often where like, it's one thing to kind of be a sponge the way that Robin Williams was, where he his mind worked so fast that inevitably in all of his grabbing, he was going to sort of mimic or repeat something that he heard. 
Um, but on the whole, he was not a plagiarizing um, comedian or prone to it. It was just part of how his synapses fired. But on some other instances, I mean, I, I've I've known cases where, you know, people would just pitch something straight up um, that uh, that I or someone else had thought of, or or I'd hear someone tell someone else a joke, and then you know something completely original out of their you know out of their mind, you know, with its phrasing and its silly voice and. And then, you know, the person that they told it to would then tweet it as if it were kind of their own and in, in essence, take the credit for, it. you know what I mean? I've been, I've been witness to so much of that shit, always white dudes, always inferior yep. white dudes who, who, you know, have something to prove or need something to prove, um, eager for something to prove. And that is, that's why I wanted to make this movie. I wanted to kind of go after that icky feeling that um, I've had those guys have given me that I've probably given people before when I've, you know, had my more flawed moments, but certainly in, in effect, not just how that competitive toxicity, you know, boils over in the company of other guys, but how it boils over when they feel entitled to a woman's success. That's when it gets particularly gross and particularly vile. And, um, and it's happened in so many different ways, but it's so wonderful to hear from different, um, different women kind of all over in their experience, having watched the film and just how it relates to um, experiences that they've had, you know, when um, they've been sort of bulldozed um or uh, or or they found themselves shrinking in the face of a man who just sort of talked over them. That's where a lot of my comedy comes from. It's you know, one of my most popular TikTok videos was a guy interrupting his you know women coworkers. Um, oh, it's such a it's such a fucking interesting um, specific uh, yeah gross quality we have. I don't know. I think it's because a lot of us you know are 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 bred, grown up, raised to. Um, uh, and, and told we're going to be the next big thing. I mean, if I, if I, if I could, if I had a dime for every time my mom told me I was going to be the next Jim Carrey when I was a kid and how, you know, incredible I was and thank God I turned out the way that I, I, I wasn't did. But, um, you know, I think, I think to a degree that can give kids a complex and they'd be told that they're going to be so killer. It's hard to take. Yeah. As opposed to at least balancing that with a little bit of, of anchoring groundedness, reality, truth. Um, you know, not so much you're going to traumatize anybody, but just a little bit of like, yeah, hey, shit happens sometimes. You know, like like what Sarah Silverman just just said in her her uh, podcast. You know, be undeniable rather than just a mediocre dude. You know, if if you're so concerned about marginalized folks, people of color, women taking your jobs, be undeniable. Like like yeah. Fanny says, do the work. I love, I love that, that she never, she never falters from that. Like it's, it's, it's such a great thing because I think we all, we all need someone to tell us that every once in a while, right? There's, there's always, you don't have to be to the point of being a serial killer to have to tone yourself. (laughs) But I like, I like that this movie unveils that he's capable of that. But that also, it doesn't need to be that bad. Like, he needed to tone it down way before he got there, right? And and she tried to do it in a, in a crisis aversion kind of a way, instead of just meeting it head on, you know? And I, I try, in, in podcasting, right, inevitably, you'll get 
um, you know, people of all different walks of life on, and I've had to dial it back, you know, and I remind people, <clears throat> I don't even care if it's live on my show. If I'm talking over you something, just tell me, I'm not going to react bad to it because, you know, you just get caught in the moment and you don't realize you're railroading over somebody, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Well said, man. So, um, you know, I, I don't want to keep you forever, but this is incredibly generous. I, I wanted to ask a couple more questions and then give you a chance to, um, you know, you're on here because Scare Me is uh, is coming out on Blu-ray soon. So um, but before we get to that, I just wanted to ask uh, the stories that you guys tell. Are those completely original and like, you know, you wrote them in the script or were they things that like you had played around with or maybe store like maybe the the troll thing was a real thing that you did with your brothers or like you know <laughs> what did you draw inspiration from somewhere or are they just things you made up for this script inspiration was drawn from everywhere um uh i every story has something to do with with um some sort of artisan creepy uh experience or um imagination wormhole i went down as a kid so from the creepy grandpa to being alone in the house and hearing something and the dog walking down the stairs to venus which is a script that i'd you know written about 40 pages of and hit a wall you know from years ago and the troll thing was more of like a i've always kind of played little trolls and kind of creatures if you look through my you know the the, the um, college humor history you'll probably see i've worn a lot more troll makeup and yep. play different kind of you know squatting creatures than um than anything and it's my happy place you know i i love uh doug jones's career and would you know would would love to be a creature performer in another life so a lot of those stories in the most part are from you know dusting off the cobwebs of ideas that i've had and and wanting to kind of showcase not just my talents but how can i how can i how can i showcase these other actors with these stories um, and, uh, you know, like with devil singer, for example, I was really excited to see Aya play such physicality, yes. um, and, and, to, and to see Chris red dance, you know, when he's spending every Saturday, essentially, you know, in just about every musical that SNL digital shorts so brilliantly directed off of my, by my buddy, Paul Briganti. Um, does and now he gets to dance in our movie um, and uh, teach me how to dance when I had a brain fart and forgot how to keep rhythm um, and uh, you know so it was it was a total hodgepodge it was kind of me scatter shotting <clears throat> a bunch of different ideas that I've that I've had and just kind of wanted to explore and just you know a, a means of basically to an end you know to fill up the second act um, and kind of puzzle piece what made the most sense as things progressed yeah, that's that's cool. And yeah, the college humor stuff is great. Like, it's one of those things when I started going down that rabbit hole, I was like, wow, yeah, you really did do everything I watched on college humor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hopefully not everything. There's probably there's so much problematic stuff because of just the different era we were in comedically yeah. back then, like like young 20 something you know, largely white dudes like, uh, oh, this, this it'll it'll be funny to end this sketch by literally, you know, committing suicide or, you know, yep. calling someone the worst the worst term you can for uh, being gay. And that's the yep. fascinating thing about like comedic history and you know, um, uh, not cancel culture so much as just the the evolution of comedy because I, you know, cancel culture is a whole other 
conversation, but just in how comedy sensibility sensitivity, which rightly should uh, has evolved and should evolve. Um, you know, you look back at episodes of Friends and just how oh. and, and these kind of and movies like you know I don't know she's all that and the homophobia. Um, you know, or you go as far back, obviously, as movies like Animal House, and they're, Animal House are basically like essentially all talking about sexual assault. Um, yep. You know, uh, Caddyshack looking through the eye hole at girls showering and the like. It's just, it's um, maybe that was meatballs. Anyway, uh, uh, Porky. Yeah, Porky's. Maybe that was it. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But that just the the whole the evolution the of where we were. Yeah. <laughs> and then too, you know, as 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 recently as college humor, I mean, there was some problematic, there's some problematic shit that we did, you know, but it was also, it wasn't because we were, we were bad folks. We just thought that like, you know, that was, that was the, um, that was the temperature of the time. That was the, the sensibility of the time. It doesn't, doesn't make it right, but it is fascinating to kind of look back and go like, holy shit. We thought that, you know, we thought that this was a good idea or we thought that this, this was funny. But see what the good part of it is, right? Is that you're able to look at that and go, "Yeah, we thought that was funny then, and you, it's it, it's evolved and it's not funny anymore." And we did that then, and we're it's the people that double down on that. You mm. call them up and go, "That wasn't cool," and they go, "Yeah, so what? That's how I am. That's who I am." And you just go, "Yeah, have to be your attitude anymore." <laughs> like, because I mean, look, look, look at Eddie Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy's in the middle of a giant career comeback, right? The guy's just, yeah. he, he, he made that incredible Dolomite is my name. He's been a background character. Yeah. in a couple of movies. He's got a special <laughs> coming out. He's got coming to America too. And yeah. he, his entire eighties comedy was vile by today's standards. Yeah. Yeah. was young and I loved it, but you can look back and go, yeah, and and he's he's making good on it. Like he's not pretending that it didn't exist, but he's just moving on from it. He's not doubling down on being that guy still. You know, that's a really good point. That's a really good point because I'm definitely haunted by you know. Oh gosh, there's going to be someday when someone's going to see something that I did or I said in a college humor video, just as an example, or you know, e even older sketches. You know, um, there was a sketch that that we thought was really killer. I, I mean, I think it was, you know, it was clever for the time. It was called water balloon fight that I did with my old sketch group, Dutch West. And we threw a water balloon at our friend, Matt. And I think American history X had just come out and you can oh, see oh. soaked through his shirt that he has swastika on his chest. And for so long, the, um, which I still think is actually a, a really prime example of in a, in a very um, sort of, sort of uh crass college way it is a more sophisticated joke to you know to walk up right up to the line and have a really tense comedic setup where for example something so gauche occurs <laughs> uh where you know you you think you know someone and holy shit they have this you know now today the swastika means something far more even you know um uh uh, tangibly um, terrifying uh, than it was more abstract when we shot that sketch and you know whatever two thousand four right. our buddy our buddy's the, roof like today it's the like magnifying holy shit. glass the magnifying glass hadn't gone on the yeah this isn't just in, in then it was 
edgy kid thinks they're edgy and has this, but probably isn't. Oh actually yeah. Either. Oh or yeah, that was so much know, of the humor. Actually, are. <laughs> yeah, man, that was that was so much of the humor that we did, and and so much of our primordial. You know, I think our 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 coming up. Um, you know, uh, I I could I could get into way more dicey territory with you know the the what I found funny as a kid. Uh, but you know, I mean, again, I, you make a really good point, which is which is comforting in a way, like what you're saying about Eddie Murphy, and really, and also about the people who who don't own up to, or rather further uh, uh, get furtherly aggressive and defensive about where right. they came from rather than using it as an opportunity to have a conversation. Another example is Precious Plum. You know, oh. I did a whole series about, you know, um, a character who's based on Mama June um, from uh, uh, Toddlers and Tiaras. And I thought as early as 2018 that that was a great, and it was, it was a really actually beautifully written series by Sam Reich and Lane Carroll and my whole reluctance to it was our reluctance to it, which was, we don't want to make fun of overweight people, but ultimately what you're doing and having a man dress up as a, you know, an, a, an obese woman and, you know, eating copious amounts of cookies. And, um, despite how sexually awake she was, it's still technically fattertainment, which wasn't yeah. a term in 2018, but it's still technically, um, it's still technically, uh, uh, you know, it's it's still technically crass or a little sort of by today's standards of our sophisticated place, um, it's 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 dated, you know. And at the time, we were like, no, you know what? This is how we're going to justify it. She's sort of sexually awake. She loves her children. She's X, Y, and Z. But you know, at the time, I thought that was <laughs> that was really fun, entertaining, great to do. And then especially since, you know, having conversations with folks for with the few folks have reached out and said, Hey, I kind of, I find this offensive. It's been really wonderful to engage in conversation and make that a conversation. Cause you imagine if, you know, any creator, I could imagine certainly if I were like, you know, well, fuck you. I thought yeah. it was great. And, well, and that's, you bring up Louis CK and that was an important point. Cause he, the things that came out about him were pretty vile and you know it, he mm. he disappeared he disappeared and said that you know he went to therapy and you know did, did this and all this and then when he came back he was touring around like shithole bars and turned himself into a mega comic from yeah. what i know. And it's yeah like, oh god you're only about making an edgy buck that's it there's there's nothing real about you and and you're just a vile person, and that sucks because he, I mean, he he was a you know a heavy hitter, you know, yeah. like this, and and it's such a bummer because you know they always say you know you live long enough and everybody that you love is going to disappoint you, like all these people you look up to, and there's very few exceptions to that. It appears. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's it's. Uh... That's a really, really, really ultimately good point is you have to, you have to use every, every sort of negative as a, as an opportunity to have a conversation. That's whenever, you know, whenever like a hero has been called out for X, Y, and C vile thing. Like if I gave say, you know, Kevin Spacey, the benefit of the doubt, when all of these allegations came out, right. well, first of all, there's a flood of allegations. It's one thing, but I always sort of question like, 
oh man, if only this person who was called it, like Louis C.K., for example, and I think Dan Harmon was one of the few people who navigated this quite well. He turned this into a conversation. He made very public his um, his transgressions, his efforts to um, to turn around what he was doing specifically. Um, uh, you know, uh, 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 not. Ch- chastising himself isn't the correct term, but sort of, you know, wrapping himself on the hand and saying, what I did was wrong. Here's why I did it. Here's how I'm apologizing. Um, and not denying it, not getting defensive, not gaslighting. And, um, right. and you know, I, it, everybody. it's never going to placate everybody. Yeah, never. Yeah. If you're yeah. genuine, if you're genuine, then at least that's a, it, it's what you put back into the world, right? You, you can't, there's a there's a very good reason why the Me Too and the cancel culture and all this stuff has gotten to where it's gotten to. And it's because people just double down. They double down when they're confronted instead of just mm. doing exactly what you said by just going, you know what? Let's let's look at this realistically. Or you double down at the beginning and then you get help and you come back and go, I 100% was wrong. There's no getting me out of this now. Maybe it's so vile that you'll never work again, you know, um, or yeah. that you get actual criminal punishment for it, which a lot of them should. But all it takes is coming out and trying to be genuine with people. I I had, you, you talk about the, the real world implication of stuff versus the everything is black and white, you know, fake world. Um, you, you know, there's gray areas and stuff. I, um, I had an incredible person, um, on my show that, um, is transgendered. And when I first interviewed, interviewed her, I didn't even know it wasn't like the reason to have them on. And mm. she, she had written a play and, um, apparently had doctored the part of why your play worked to a conversation her and I had had from a while ago. And I was so honored by this because it was for a PhD. Wow. It's a play about, um, you know, a person whose family is realizing who they are. You know, it's a very personal story and it's, it's funny and it's hilarious. It's as if, you know, one of those comedies you talked about that have all like the gay jokes and stuff were mm. written by someone in that community. Do you know what I mean? So it's mm, a very, I love that. And there is a villain in the story, which is someone that the person grew up with who is very villainous and written very villainous. and their advisor had told them you i want to see these people get raked over the coals and she said no she goes i (laughs) want that character to learn that character is going to be confronted for all the vile stuff they've said and they're not immediately just going to be a better person but the point of my story is that is these people are going to be met on an even playing field and they're going to work through it and it's not going to be sappy after school special they're still going to be rocky and rough around the edges when all is said and done but I want it to be real. I don't want it to just be that every bad person needs to get lit on fire and every good person <laughs> something wrong with them. But at the same time, there is going to be a character in there that's just going to double down the whole time and they're you know just going to be cast out. But this person, I'm intentionally showing them how bad they are so they can be redeemed a little bit. And I went, that's mm. fascinating because we had that conversation about gray areas, about how in the real world, yeah, there's just some outwardly terrible people. Like I believe after seeing, hearing the stuff about Kevin Spacey and seeing how he's doubled down, there's something very, very wrong with that gentleman. And he yeah. has been, he has been, um, what's the word? 
he's been humored and allowed to be how he is and enabled for too long that there's no yeah. just switch and a flip that's going to fix it. Yeah. You know, yes. Yeah. It's, it's like the Bill Cosby thing. When you learn about yeah. that, it's like everybody just let him be this way. This is not yeah. Bill Cosby's doing, you know, he might, yep. it, 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 and it sucks. But, um, but I think on the human level, if we engage more, it's not going to automatically make them good people again, but I think it could do a lot to better future people from repeating the same mistakes. I agree. I, yeah, I, I fully agree with you, man. Couldn't have said it better myself. And I like that your movie's about a lot of that instead of it. Like she still is having a good time with Fred this, you know, until he turns into homicide or cycle jungle cat, Calvin and Hobbes. Um, <laughs> until he goes that way, she genuinely is still having a good time. She's not like her written condescension of him is not a write off of him. You know, there's still yeah. a, let's just hang out and have a good time. You know, like there's still that playfulness and you know, she's not afraid of him until there's reason to be afraid. Yeah, it's been cool to talk to people or, or hear feedback, especially from, from women who are like, wow, Fanny was such a bitch. She was such an unbearable bitch. I'm like, well, gosh, well, you know, yeah, but but like I I like I like that folks other than you know, other than really Chris's character, they kind of look at this these guys as kind of none of them are quite redeemable. And that's sort of how we yeah. how we kind of all are. Not that we're all unredeemable, but that we are we're all gray area human beings and no one is perfect. Um, but you know, when it comes down to it, to really terrorize someone or really scare someone, that's wrong and that's terrifying. Yeah, what are you um, doing with that poker? It's like and I yeah. love that the movie doesn't let you be aware of that until she sees it. That was another yeah. thing. Where it's like it's almost like he. I'm not saying that he wasn't um, responsible for what he did, but it's almost like he's possessed by the toxicity. Right? It's like I grabbed this and right. didn't like I just know how to be intimidating by um, by my sheer makeup of just being a guy. You know. Right. Damn, like, and you're right. She, I wouldn't use the word, you know, bitch. Girls, girls can be real catty with each other, but she's <laughs> she's definitely strong-willed and definitely has a. There, there's some awkward overcompensating she does too to be likable, and hers is to be, you know, like the, the she. She definitely has that. All right, time to be the fun girl. Who wants to do some coke? Mm. And it's mm -hmm. just like. All right, this is how she makes situations more easygoing, how she gains control. But with her, there's nothing toxic about it. She's just, you know, kind of obnoxious about it. But so is, so is yeah. Chris, you know, Carlos is eating it up. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like yeah. Party. And Fred yeah. is so beyond that. Fred is like, Fred is already done at that point. He's, you know, yeah. you can see it in the eyes, just like, I'm bored with both of you. And <laughs> Yeah, it's hard to be ostracized, you know, especially when you don't have insulation. It makes it all the more terrifying. It's a dagger being dug into this dude. Yeah. And you can see how you the movie does a good job of showing how that can cut him deep without you necessarily being able to be cut by it as an audience member. Like I sit there and go, they're just busting each other's balls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but while still hopefully insidiously being able to see 
oh god is this guy you know or at least you can justify why and how he broke and it's like a little too much drugs and alcohol yeah and a fractured ego it's like you don't have enough insulation it's a lot of people's problem if i had known that dairy was going to change you into a psycho i wouldn't order the pizza (laughs) (laughs) there you go that's right this this has been great um i i want to give you a chance now for for shout outs that you may have missed, if there's anybody, obviously this is a labor of love and there's a lot of people you've already thanked and to, you know, tell people, you know, where they can find this. And I'm assuming, I'm assuming, cause you said, you know, you had to get, you know, offshoot a lot of, um, a lot of the money that you would have made with the guild and stuff to get the movie built. I would imagine and hope that through this shutter deal and now the fact that you're going to be able to buy the movie, like you told me soon, that hopefully there's a future where you make some money off scare me. So tell people about I, it. I'm positive. Uh, I'm positive we will someday. It's a low budget movie, but it's a, you know the movie industry is um, is a very tricky one. We didn't have a theater run. We went right to a streamer, and now we're kind of relying on, you know, the kind of uh, the street team ground effort to get the word out. And it's it's also why I'm talking to as many folks I can who host podcasts like yours. Why I'm sending people postcards and keeping active on Twitter, and doing contests and commentaries and everything is. You know, I um, uh, watch parties is, uh, is, you know, I want to drive traffic to our to our little movie. I want to keep the conversation going. And I, I just I, you know, I'm, I'm proud of it. Um, but yeah, man, not only can you get the DVD Blu-ray, which is chock full of extras um, of Scare Me on March 2nd. Um, you can also buy the single from the movie. Feel the music, feel the light. Get ready for some serious evil um, on iTunes and Spotify and wherever you get your music. So um, support independent filmmaking, get the Blu-ray or the DVD, check out the extras. It's well worth the cash. Um, and also I'm going to, starting March 2nd, I'm going to be um, putting the scripts back on sale in a big way for anyone who missed out on getting a, um, a collector's edition Scare Me screenplay. I'll sign them. I'll send you a little postcard with them. I mail them out personally. It's a labor of love, um, but uh, I will be. Um, I'm, I'm really excited to uh, to get those back out into the world for anybody who who wants a script. And um, yeah, once I recoup costs on everything I had, you know, paid for um, for printing them, I want to start giving some away, especially to folks who may not have um, read scripts before, have access to screenplays, and that can um, you know that are eager to start writing some their own. That's awesome. And links to all that stuff will be with this podcast. So you guys will be able to find that stuff easily. That song is, is that Aya singing that song? I mean, obviously. No, that's my buddy. um, That's my buddy, Annie Kruger from, uh, from Woodstock, New York, uh, who is uh, so kind to lend her vocals to it. She just kills it. Um, Yeah. She's actually the lead in a lifetime Christmas movie called a taste of Christmas. And she was, she's actually so great in it. Um, we had a little, uh, little screening of it. Not long after we had a screening of it, um, an outdoor screening at my sister's place in Woodstock this past, uh, past fall. Um, when, um, you know, we were all bundled and distant from one another. It was, it was so fun to do. So Annie look out for her work. She totally kills it. Um, and uh yeah we're all uh splitting profits on that single to you know get these guys um you know paid a little bit more for for the favor gig they basically did for us to make this brian adams-esque south park ballad um so um yeah check it out 
Thanks, man. Yeah, I, I, I just, I just love it. I was so happy to get it out in the world. Yeah, that that sequence. I mean, the the, the whole movie is great. It's just that that sequence is the culmination of their control over reality, right? Where you know, oh, the, yeah. the light, lighting ramps up, the sound effects ramp up, the um, the dance number with you guys, you know, coming in in the background. You know, it's just it's really really well done. And just her battle with the devil, the look on her face performing it when the lyrics turn into you know to kill everybody basically and that yeah look out of my mouth <laughs> she played that so so well yeah that's a, that's well said it's it's the moment in the movie when the 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 creative flow is so visceral that it literally becomes transportive it's literally transportive it takes them to another another plane and they're all they're all operating on an even playing field which is what i love there too it really shows that Fred actually has a little bit of talent in him, you know, when yeah. he's just able to kind of let go and have fun. Like he's really shitting on himself. But at that point, the three of them aren't telling each other what to say anymore. They're finishing each other's sentences. You right. Know? That's the, it becomes about the bliss of the creative process. Like the bliss of like, you know, yes. And, you know, as we say in improv or like building on a story, like if you're creating a story with a buddy, just kind of, the fun of it. That's, that's what the, that's what devil singer sequence is all about. Yeah, I, I absolutely love it. And and I absolutely love this movie. And dude, I really, from the bottom of my heart, appreciate you giving me the time today. I, uh, I think this was great. My pleasure, man. Yeah. I really, really appreciate it. It was a great conversation. My God, we went deep. We did. And that's what I like to do. And I, uh, I can't, I can't wait for people to hear this, you know, like if in case in case you're tuning in now, like this is a radio show, um, this is Josh Rubin. He acted, wrote, and directed um, in Scare Me on Shutter. If you haven't seen it, watch it now. If you have seen it, watch it again. Please click on all the links below. Um, you know, help it out. You know, physical media is great. I'll be buying a script. I'll be buying the Blu-ray. I'm gonna buy that song. Um, you know, because I, I just think it's all great. I think talking to someone who's creative about the thing they created, it things don't end with, with watching a movie. You know, I, I do a whole podcast about the video store rent rental industry. It's not going to a movie, renting a movie, talking about movies with your friends. All of this is part of the film. If you just watch it and forget about it, the movie didn't do its job. Beautifully said. Well, dude, again, thank you so much. Thank you for shooting the shit with Chippa. Thank you all for listening. And we'll talk to you all again soon. Bye.